Are you familiar with Jair Bolsonaro? Yeah. Jair Bolsonaro is okay. And the because first, the way you pronounce this first name, Jair, Jair Bolsonaro, right? Jair. But they don't pronounce the J that way, do they? I Jair. honestly, I don't know. How do you I, spell it? I feel J-A-I-R. like he's not worthy of enough respect for me to look up how the right way Jair. to pronounce his name Jair. is. Jair Bolsonaro. Would it be Jair? Okay. Anyway, yeah. yes, you're probably Bolsonaro. Right. So I'm, Bolsonaro. I'm going. Yeah. I'm going. I'm going to visit my parents uh, next month. Uh, in Florida, and I'm going to be on the lookout because he's 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 roaming Florida. Oh, really? Yes, uh, he's been seen at a KFC. <laughs> he's been seen at a Publix uh, grocery store. And also, I want to know the place he's staying. Um, it's with what some like MMA fighter or yes, something. Yes, he's staying with an MMA fighter. Apparently, so the man has his guest bedroom is Minions themed. So there's a really good shot that Jair Bolsonaro is sleeping in a Minions-themed bedroom in Florida. Okay, are we talking about the president? We are. We're talking yeah. about the, pre- the ex-president. Ex-president. Yeah. Yeah. So Venezuela. I want to know, like, if, you, uh, if uh, I were uh, to see him. Brazil. Brazil. If, yeah, I, yeah, if yeah. I were to see him uh, in, in Florida, yeah. what, what, should I, what should I ask him? How should I approach it? What, what should I say? I would ask him about George Santos. That's a great oh. question. That's very yeah, good. you. That is what you ask him do. if That's he's actually... ever if he's ever party with George Santos. <laughs> he party he, George Santos. Has he ever dressed in drag? Um, <laughs> uh, what 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 name did he know George Santos by back in Brazil yeah. when they were both hanging in Brazil? Are you they here? Are you out. here really because of George Santos? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> is George well George Santos? I'm sure would tell you that he's like his like he yeah buddy. You know right, they knew right. each other really quite well, um, at some point in life. I kind of believe that, even though he is clearly a compulsive liar, George Santos, yeah. and he's like said it. I, I think that would be the one thing I'd believe if you were like, "Oh no, I'm actually yeah. very close." Yeah, with that, that I can't believe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Comrades and friends, hello. Uh, Rob here in the Bunker Studio. We are in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're behind enemy lines. We're in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. Super producer Carl is not with us. Yeah. I, I regret to inform everyone. Please send him good vibes. He's been he's been elite captured. Uh he's been he's been taken over by 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 special interests, elites. <laughs> the elites like like John Carney, like his dad. Like Lex Wilson right now have taken him out, yeah, and he's been elite captured. But but we hope uh, we hope he'll be back soon. We're building that bubble right now above um, the, the triangle, triangle Brandywine Hills. Yes, um, you know we gotta we gotta contain and neutralize the threat of COVID. The bunker actually had to send out a group. Uh, if you've ever seen some of those um, like movies about viruses spreading, we sent out a group in hazmat, fully armed. Uh, at the base of the Augustine Cutoff Bridge, uh, right there, to make sure they stay on their side of the park, because they can't. We have a, we have a whole network of of, uh, of underground. They let me series. through. Yeah, I gave them passwords. Yeah, well, we, that you we told know. me, and, Look, <laughs> and it worked. Yeah, we, we know how to get people in and out. Really, There's yeah. no problem. So uh, obviously, you hear uh, our friend and comrade Kirsten Walther is here. Uh, Kirsten, thank you for coming. Absolutely. And uh, our here. big big guest tonight is. Um, the we took a straw poll, secret straw poll here at the bunker, uh, at our meeting last night, and you are the most progressive state senator 
uh, in Dover, Laura Sturgeon. Hello. Thank you very much. Hello. Thank you for having me. And I can't believe that I beat Marie Pinckney. Hmm. I mean... You said it. The, I mean, yeah, the, the, the popular poll. The popular not, poll. It was, it was a strong nominated poll. Nominated you. So. I, I had questions about it. I did question it, and then I got pushback. I got pushback. But now nobody nobody mentioned Marie, and now I'm 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 wondering. Well, here's what here's what you could do. I'm probably if, the most progressive state senator in the fourth Senate district. <laughs> that huh. yeah, I feel like you've got a very good shot of winning that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you for coming. Thank you. Um, I bef- before we get into like the sort of crazy political stuff, I'm interested. I always ask people about their background and and stuff that you know might have influenced their uh, their move into public service. But um, but you were a long term teacher, and so yeah, what, what subjects did you teach? How did you get into it? And uh, and what was what was it like? Well, thank you for that question. I was a high school English teacher for 17 years uh, in the Votech School District at Del Castle and then at Hodson Votech. And then um, I decided I wanted to move back to North Wilmington where I'd grown up and uh, sort of start a new life with my uh, soon-to-be new husband. And we, um, so I transferred districts and I went to Brandywine School District where the only opportunity was to teach Spanish. Well, luckily, I happened to speak Spanish because my parents are from South America and I grew up bilingual. So I accepted a job as a Spanish teacher with the intention of using that as my foot in the door and then returning to teaching English literature, which is my true love. But that never transpired. Um, world language teachers were in very high demand. English teachers were... Um, a dime a dozen at the time, and there was never an opening. So I stuck with Spanish for eight years and um, finished out my career doing that in the Brandywine School District. I loved it, especially when I was an English teacher because I was teaching what I was very passionate about. Um, I miss it. There is nothing as gratifying as, you know, the relationship you build with your students um, when, a, when a classroom comes together and by the end of the year they're like a family and um, – and, you know, not only do you learn literature or or, or, or a new language, uh, but you just learn about each other and you learn from each other. And that just that synergy that happens um, cannot really be duplicated in any other setting. And it was just absolutely a wonderful career. Uh, I did it for 25 years and um, I think about it often and I look back at it fondly. And I I hope that when this chapter of my life is over, maybe I'll. My final chapter will be to go back and, and teach again. Yeah, that's cool. I actually have a um, – Kirsten and I were chatting a little bit about it. I have a neat little um, – I don't know what we'll call it. I guess we'll call it an exercise yeah. at the end of this if we have time. We're, we're going to grade Rob. We're going to grade – I'm going to yeah. get a grade. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So I'm used be, to giving grades. Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be – well – I need I a also, rubric. Usually they – nowadays they you're want you to have be, a rubric. Uh, you're going to be like the, the evaluation – and you'll you'll be like the student evaluation and the teacher evaluation or <laughs> yeah. something. Or I'm okay, going to be evaluated because right. I have a I have a lesson uh, that I'm going to sort of talk about, and you guys tell me if it's like a if it's good. You guys, you, if I have it or if I don't have it. Okay. But we'll get we'll get to that. All right. It's gonna be fun. Uh, yeah. Do you do you care, or did you want me to talk about how did I go from being a teacher to deciding to run for office? Well, the first thing I want to know uh, before we get to that. Okay. Is your experience um, with the teachers' union? 
with uh, you were were you on the on the board of the DSEA, uh, and how long and and what was that like? Uh, and I have a few questions about it. Sure. Um, so I started as a building rep um, for for a while when I was in the Votech district, but I really got involved uh, when I when I went to Brandywine School District, much more much more involved in the teachers union. My first role, I was at, uh, there was this one year, I mostly taught at Concord High School, but one year I was at Brandywine High School, my alma mater. Um, and that year I met the president of the BEA, the local union, Steve Rulon, and I was complaining to him about some issues going on in my classroom, some, you know, pretty serious issues that were affecting my ability uh, to to feel like I was making a difference for my students. I, I thought my students were being shortchanged. And um, unfortunately, we weren't able to solve the problem. But what, what did come of it is he said, you know, you really should get involved. And BEA executive team um, is missing um, a minority action chair. And I guess he knew I was Hispanic. And he said, and the minority action chair is actually an appointed position. And I, as the president, get to appoint that person. Would you like to be our minority action chair? And so, sure, I asked him a little bit about what it involved. And he told me that, you know, it involved trying to uh, make sure that we are reaching out to the minorities in our, you know, among um, the, the teaching staff and uh, making sure that, like, we're up to date on affairs and issues affecting minorities uh, within the teaching profession and so on and so forth. So I was happy to do it mostly because it got me to be a member of the executive team. And that's that was my really my big entree into sort of the higher level of um, union involvement. After a few years of that, I decided to run for DSCA, the state level. Um, and uh, I ran just to be I guess it's just a board member from um, from Newcastle County. I think you there were five positions, um, and a few of them were open, and they're all at large for the whole county. And I ran, and I won one of those openings. I think there might have been two openings, and that's when I started to serve not only as an executive board member at the local level, but as a executive board member at the state level. I did it for about a year and a half to two years um, when I decided to run for office and realized how much time that would take while still being a full-time teacher, I stepped away from the executive board of DSCA. Do you think, because like a lot of our movement depends on uh, worker organizing, all kinds of different workers. And do you think that the Delaware Teachers Union is in a position to leverage power like that? I mean, what was their goal? And and I, and I don't mean to diminish it, by the way, because any any you know, um, my ex wife was a teacher and an administrator, and the idea that the union is going to you know sort of protect you, bargain for you, that's all great. Um, but if you can't strike, or well, anybody can strike. By the way, FYI, another bunker. This is bunker rule 79, mm -hmm. subsection 2. <laughs> anybody can strike. It's sort of like the law. Anybody can protest. Like If you get a permit, it's called a parade. You don't have to ask permission to do it. Yeah. You just, you, so anybody can strike, but do, do you work to 
like the work that goes into putting on a wildcat strike is also just like because I feel like it's we've gotten that kind of with I don't know people on Twitter calling for a general strike and it's like right yeah I mean withholding one's labor is really powerful and you know it's and it's an important tool but like I was just sorry to chime no. in here I was just reading um uh, Jane McAlevey I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that is how her you name. Say it, okay yeah, yeah. yeah like uh, no shortcuts organizing yeah. for power Great in the new gilded age and like famous organizer incredible right. book um I've been talking about it the past month like nonstop um like every single meeting with Drew or whatever I'm like oh well according to this book that I'm reading and you know he's maybe sick of hearing me talk about it but she like, loves that stuff yeah I've been like hyper focused on it but just uh you know she says throughout it that like striking is a muscle and you have to exercise to keep it strong and i think like that is true that yeah anyone can strike but like it's really really hard to do it yes and it requires so much work so like you know well here's what i'll say because it's a good point and and i want to make it clear yeah like people who just sort of just generally call for a general strike or some other kind of wildcat strike i think that's ridiculous we're not there we have no we don't have that kind of organization to just do that the difference here is DSEA already has the organization. Yeah, they have a you. They they have it already. So that organizing part that's usually the the most difficult part is. Yeah, I don't want to say it's all the way done because not everybody's convinced that they can be. Yeah, assertive. Like not, that. I mean, that's a big part of it. That's though, a big part that, of it. Yeah. But the but the the architecture is there to organize everybody. I'll give you an example, and I'd like to hear what Laura thinks about about this. I think. That the lead in the water in the schools is a catastrophe. I think it's a disaster. And the idea that it's not like an emergency situation like COVID is actually boggles my mind. I don't understand why it's not. And the fact that it's happening in schools, uh, I think, is significant. And I think to be able to do a wildcat strike in the face of legal challenges it would require the organization that the union sort of already has and an issue to rally everybody around like why are you and your kids being poisoned at school and why has nobody treat like why hasn't anybody broken the glass in case of emergency and so you know i i I, i'm certainly glad that the teachers here have protection i'm glad they collectively bargain and get whatever they can get Uh, i know that they're they're up for at least a, a fairly decent raise it sounds like um I don't listen yeah. to the governor because it doesn't matter. But um, so that's great. But what is your what is your feeling about whether um, there's a th- there is a desire to maybe go further and flex the you know strengthen the muscle a little bit, be a little more radical, take a stand at least against something like lead in the water. I mean, what's your feeling about that? There is so much to unpack there and I'm not sure where to start and I and I thought you were going one direction and then you went to the lead um but I think I'd like to respond to the first things you were saying before we got to the lead um I think that you know I'll be honest I I wasn't I didn't find that I was able to affect the kind of change I wanted to see in our education system even when I reached what was, you know, almost the highest level I could get, which was to be on the executive board at, at the state level. Um, and so running for office was a, was 
you know, very much um, influenced by that. So that tells you that, yes, even I felt a certain amount of frustration. Um, I don't necessarily think that it's a flaw of the union. Um, I think all institutions have limitations. And I think a, a teacher's union exists to represent all teachers and Teachers are by no means a monolith. We have very conservative teachers downstate. You know, we have, um, well, we have conservative teachers everywhere. We have progressive teachers. We have teachers from so many different backgrounds and stripes. And so um, I, it would probably be hard to get to a point where all of those people would agree on the right course of action, especially in a state that doesn't have the tradition of striking. Right. Because of whatever law, I mean, I don't even know what is it in code. I was always told we I can't strike so. in Delaware, I think, I but I was. Public, I don't think public employees can. I, you're right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a great question. I don't know. I, I, I guess I would just say, as as far as the diversity of of the rank and file, I mean that that's something I think that Jane Macklin could speak to. Like, I, I yeah. think that's like I I think that's a that's a dynamic pretty much in every. That's why union organizing is the way that it is. Because I, yeah. um, I, I think that's a that's a fact in in every union. I mean, the firefighters are unionized. I mean, I'm sure there's some <laughs> there's yes. some reactionary guys there and women yeah. too. Um, you know, uh, the, the building trades, obviously. Um, you but, know, the Teamsters. I, I'm sure that there are there are, are UPS drivers uh, with some pretty horrible politics. Um, but you know, but I'm going to give the UPS drivers full solidarity when they strike because they're going to get a good they're going to get a good deal this time, I think. So that like I just feel like that dynamic is pretty standard. Um, but I do appreciate the fact that when there's no history, you, you kind of have to you're going to you're going to tell a narrative that's going to get everybody excited about it. Right, and I also think other professions um, that are unionized um, exist for a much more uh, narrow and clear purpose uh, to fight fires, to, um, you know, to, to you, you, you have a union around a certain, um, a certain skill, right? Skilled labor, things like that. Teachers, I mean, they teach all different ages. They teach all different subjects. They come at those subjects from so many different perspectives. And, um, it would be hard, I think, to find one thing that they would all be willing to rally around other than the things that they are they do do well, which is rallying around, you know, pay raises and working conditions and things like that. I would agree that if we were poisoning our students, that would be something teachers would be willing to rally around. Which um, it seems like, <laughs> I mean, based on what I'm reading, it seems like perhaps we are doing that. I mean, the numbers sort of say that we're probably doing that, right? So no. Based on the couple of hearings that I was a part of, um, first the community town hall, and then the hearing we recently had. That oh, so was, you were at the town hall as well, the the the, the one on Zoom. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah, yeah, I was one of the co-hosts. Um, uh, so yes, uh, according to everything that we've learned um, in conversations that we've had with the administration, and well, really mostly through the administration, the Department of Health and the Department of Education, um, where while there were elevated levels of lead in the water in some of the drinking water sources in some of our schools, 
there has not been a widespread um, elevation of blood lead levels in our students. Now, I don't how know. Do, how do they? How do they measure? I mean, are they taking everybody's well, blood? Well, no. And the problem too is the time at the time that the tests were taken. Uh, by the time people found out, there was that long lag, and by then a blood level, a blood lead level test wouldn't be able to tell you whether you were exposed to lead. Mm -hmm. So, so that that is part of the problem. But there, but just generally speaking, we in Delaware don't have a particularly acute problem of like high blood lead levels. And when they do appear, they can often be traced back to um, something in the home. And so just based on the overall numbers, you, I think you are supposed to test your children for blood at 12 months and 24 months yeah. is what I've learned. And um, doctors are not seeing elevated levels in any large. 12 and 24 months old. Mm-hmm. At first, yeah. Right. So kids at school don't go to school until they're three or four. So how, what, what 11, what 10, 11, 12, 13, 9, 16-year-old are getting their blood tested? I don't think any of them. Yeah, I mean, this really sounds to me like, well, we went to the tables here. Really, I mean, nobody, nobody's sick yet, right? Well, we you don't know, know Look, right? if there's, here's the yeah. thing. If there's lead in the water... It's bad. Yeah. Now, I'm not, you know, obviously if there's a little bit of lead, it's not as bad as if there's a lot. You know, I, I know how, you know, how levels work and stuff. But um, I, I just don't like this idea that, uh, well, you know, there's not a lot. And with the testing range was, it sounds like it's some technocratic stuff that I'm not interested in. Uh, if there's lead in the water, we don't have to wait till somebody, there's a wave of sickness of, of 12-year-olds. Because, again, well, we're not. if pediatricians <laughs> test at 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, the kids don't go to school until well, they're that's five. Yeah. Yeah. So none of that matters. So what's, what is uh, being done in the General Assembly now? So we right now we're just holding the agencies accountable and asking a lot of questions. And now we're starting to hear answers that make us much more comfortable and co- confident. Uh, but we're going to have to continue to monitor and see what's happening. Mm. What? What um, I mean, we had pediatricians at our last hearing, um, you know, public health experts, not just in government, but, you know, in, in hospital from hospitals and all that. So and the consensus seems to be that there is not a cause for alarm, um, that the biggest time that you need to worry about a child being exposed to lead, elevated levels of lead is before six and younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so truly, if you wanted to focus on that age group, that that's probably where you'd want to look. You I guess you'd have to ask yourself if there's if there was lead in one water fountain in the fifth grade wing, um, it's very unlikely that a second grader was exposed to it. And maybe if they had one sip one day as they were walking by that water fountain, that would not be enough to, to cause an issue. Um, it would you have to have repeated exposure. So somebody would have to be like guzzling water from that water fountain every single day. Like that was their source of water. So I think when they look at the whole landscape, um, it was like 
sporadically throughout buildings. It wasn't yeah. every wing. It wasn't every water source because it's not it's not in it's not coming in through um, from the outside. We know for a fact that the water is safe because it's tested before it enters the buildings. And then even once it enters the buildings, it's it sounds like for the most part, it's not the pipes, but rather the fixtures. Mm -hmm. And so fixtures are, by definition, fixed in one place. Yeah. And so you would really only be concerned about students and staff who often drank water from that fixture. Mm -hmm. um, and it's too late, unfortunately, now to test those people who would be most at risk because they were closest to that fixture or those fixtures, plural, in the various schools. Because at this point, there'd be no way to tell if, if you can tie it back yeah. to that because they've all been turned off now. Um, so have they identified the, the dangerous fixtures in all of the schools at this point? So they did the best they could with the original grant money. But because we have so little faith in how the whole thing was handled, mm -hmm. There, they have now um, contracted with an or with with uh, Bata B A T T A, uh, who is going around and literally testing every single fixture in every single public school in Delaware, and turning off those that test at I think seven point five or higher, mm -hmm. um, and uh, providing alternative water sources if needed. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, they will not reopen those sources until they've been, um, completely eliminated of, of any lead. And that process they tell us will take until early April. Um, in the meantime, all the sources that were found to have lead during the first round, um, are off and will remain off. Um, and this round will, do a better job of capturing any sources and they are encouraging people to go to their pediatrician or to a health center. There are health centers for those who don't have their own doctor and ask to have their child tested if they have a concern. Um, and the test is free at the centers. Um, and, you know, we've asked them, well, why not test every child? Why not bring, you know, mobile units to the schools and test them? And, the explanation a doctor, I think it was a doctor from Nemours, it might have been Christiana Care, I don't remember, but she said that the screenings that they can do on the spot tend to bring back a lot of false positives and could cause a lot of concern and panic. She said there's only been a very small number of young of children who've tested positive and then on retest through a because then if that's positive, you send them for a blood blood test, a serum test. When they come back, that one, which is much more accurate, is showing normal levels. Mm. Um, and so there's a fear of creating a public panic when one isn't warranted. And I know that sounds like a lot of excuses, but they've yeah, consistently mean, I, gi given that same message. I think that that's fair. And, and it's funny that you use that uh, terminology because I, I was sitting here like, I, I don't want to be like, a, you know, creating a, a panic about something. Um, I don't think, you know, we have a waves of sickness. I just I, I do I do think that there is a tendency to get a little sort of uh, like in the weeds on stuff or sort of take a, like a blase attitude like, well, it was it was these fixtures at this time and that time. And I'm not talking about you specifically. I mean, the 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 uh, the official um, administration response, you know, I, I you know, I, I'm. 
I, I understand that the administration is very upset with the coverage that it's getting. Um, so, like, you know, it seems to me that th- that's coming. F- that's the reason that's happening is because the response seems very, um, like uh, inadequate. Inadequate. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, let's think of a reason why not doing anything is the right idea. It's like we're backing into the idea, like we don't really want to do too much. So let's get everybody together to reassure everybody mm-hmm. why the, the why that we're not doing anything. It, it and that's of, what it, that's yeah. how that's how it rings in my ear. It reminds me of Trump saying, "Hey, we shouldn't test as many people for COVID stop because then our COVID right, yeah. right. We have to stop the testing. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me, excuse me. Stop the testing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a little bit of that. I look, I think the advocacy of like these really these strong advocates out there like Ledfree Delaware is what forced the Department of Education to do what they're doing now, which mm-hmm. is doing it right. And, you know, contracting with, uh, uh, I mean, they're paying like five times as much as what their the grant was to really go and do it right and make sure the communication is happening to the homes that didn't yeah. happen the first time. Because I heard that this time around they're releasing it like school by school, I think, whereas before it was all at once and... And they weren't even releasing. The, I mean, it was yeah. it was done. It was it was truly an embarrassment how the first round was handled. The embarrassment was more in just incompetence. They you know because they were so overwhelmed with COVID and. But I, I feel like it was more of a failing of competency around the handling of the testing, rather than a true public health em- emergency. But. Nobody has confidence in that because they failed yeah. so badly to communicate and to just do it right. They were sending tests to schools without any instructions on what to do with them. And they were assuming that, you know, the the maintenance supervisor would know what to do. And and then yeah. everyone was pointing the finger at everyone else about, well, it was your job to tell the parents and the families what we found. And like, no, that was your job. And yeah. the, the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. And I agree. All that was horrible. Thank God, so far we have not seen evidence that there is a huge lead problem because that kind of incompetence, had there been a huge lead problem, I mean, we're still figuring it out. We we need to get through all the schools. But so far, what we're seeing seems like the levels are not so terrible. And unless, again, unless a, a child or a parent... I mean, or a staff member were guzzling from that same source all day long rather than maybe just a sip, you know, once every few days. Our kids are probably okay unless they're getting exposed at at home, which is much more likely. And the other thing that they're worried about is if we overly focus on the schools, people might get complacent about the exposure to lead in the home where it's much more likely because all homes built before 1978 uh, may well have lead paint. Mm -hmm. Um, So they, that's their other thing they're trying to balance is making sure we don't get people complacent about the lead problem more writ large than just the school problem. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to give us some of the priorities that you're working on. So we know how to like kind of get behind those. But before I do that, I, I, I just I had a an interesting thought come into my mind a couple of days ago, knowing we were going to talk. <laughs> and 
I think you might have mentioned it even before. I don't know if you mentioned it on the mic or, or not, but you you do have a, a district that you, you your constituents are, you know, middle class, upper middle class people. Um, so those constituents are going to have particular material ideas. So that's going to be a challenge for, you know, well, it'd be a challenge for anybody, but for somebody that we call perhaps the most progressive senator, we don't know. <laughs> Marie Pinckney, now that, that we've thought about it, it's close. It's a close call. Um, so that's a challenge. But there's another challenge, and I wonder if, if one is more acute and, and again, I, I'm not pointing fingers at particular people. I'm calling it sort of like an institutional challenge. Um, so the General Assembly, a procedural, there's an institutional challenge, I think, that's, that's pretty obvious in Delaware, but it's everywhere, about the way things work, who wields the power, who, who are their constituents, what are their set of interests, and, and trying to navigate around that without getting completely sort of bullied out of it if you don't share you know the if you're not just an institutionalist say um do you are both of those pressures on you all the time do you think about them both do you think about more one than the other does one seem to inhibit um your six what you think you're successful at one or the other like how do you how do you differentiate sort of overcoming these sort of pressures so currently in terms of the institution there there's not a lot of tension there i i feel very comfortable with my current leadership um i'm very lucky in that way that at least i know for the most part if there's something i'm i feel very passionate about um, i will be heard and uh supported by my leadership to get it through the Senate. Um, you know, not every single thing, but most things. I mean, I have had some disappointments, but 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 not very many. Um, the, there, it's sometimes more of a challenge getting it through the other chamber um, for, for a variety of reasons. <laughs> but one, but I'm going to, you know, to be fair, I, I could probably... I could probably do better at trying to build more relationships over in the house. I'm by nature an introvert and I have a very small circle of confidants and friends and I kind of feel comfortable working within that. And um, that doesn't serve me well if, if I'm going to work on a piece of le legislation that might be controversial. Um, you know, it would, you know, I could probably get it through the Senate, but who knows what would happen in the house. So, you know, I think that my own um, limitations, you know, are part part of the issue. And, you know, you know Sarah McBride, um, who I think we all compare ourselves to, who is, you know, truly like a phenom, uh, um, um, just a master politician, a master human being. You know, look how she was able to, like, build all these relationships in the House and then even with the administration, the governor's office specifically to get paid leave passed. Like, I don't know that I will ever be that person, that talented. Um, I just, I'm just by nature much more, um, I don't know. I just. I, well, I see, I would argue that anybody can do that. Yeah. Now, I think Sarah's particularly yeah. positioned. And also, like, it's 
again, as we were talking about with like exercising the strike muscle and it being a ton of work, like I I love that you mentioned that, Laura, because I think that um, the relationship building piece is often either taken for granted or people maybe don't understand the power of it. Um, And I think, yeah, you're right that like Sarah McBride is really good at it. Um, And like when you were talking about DSEA, I was thinking about the Jane McAlevey chapter about the Chicago Teachers Union where like they when they ran their new slate, like they had put in so much work just organizing their fellow members and having a lot of just doing the relationship building that wasn't like I mean, it was everything is political, so it was political in that sense, but it wasn't like they were framing it that way. It was just about like making their personal bond stronger and like and that takes time yes ex- especially no if you're an introvert right I, yes. I think some people yeah, well, probably can yeah. do it faster that's the two things i yes. don't like going is to the events sarah and sarah, the, yeah. sarah has a, a background where she has contacts and she's done other work yeah. that has put her in touch with people so that's the first thing the yeah. second thing is some people just aren't like you're not going to go and yuck it up with everybody because mm-hmm. and nourish I don't think that that's necessarily how you do it all the time. Some do it that way. Some do yeah, it. Yeah, that fits their personality. Or, or, or you yeah. know, and and yeah, Sarah is pretty outgoing anyway. But like, I don't think that has everything to do with it. Uh, plus, no, plus, was... I think there are people who are res- more reserved people, more introverted people that just strategize a different a different way. They're able yeah. to they're able to build sort of connections just in a, in a different sort of sort of way. Yeah, I mean, I because I feel like that's I'm not. I would probably describe myself as more introverted, like, but I obviously my work requires me to be talking to people very often. And like, but yeah, it's like some people are just like, I would say I'm more comfortable in like one on ones or small group settings. And like it, those are also really important and it's really good to be able to connect with people one on one. So, yeah, I mean, it serves me well. You would think it would be hard for an introvert to get elected, but conversations at the doors are one-on-one yep. right yeah, conversations exactly. at um you know on the phone are, are one-on-one so mm-hmm. it it's fine and and sarah would tell you she's an introvert too so i i shouldn't be just but she she just she i think well, she has politicians more... have a lot of narratives you yeah gotta, no narratives right well i i don't know if it's narrative or put, if it's authentic but i i'd like to believe she's being authentic <laughs> when she says that but and i I have less patience with going out and building relationships with people who I'm not more naturally aligned with. Let's yeah, put it that yeah. way. <laughs> I, I have, you know, it's harder but for I me. Think what you, yes. <laughs> does that and, make sense? Yes. Yeah. Not only does it make sense, here's what I would suggest. And I don't know what you think. Also, I, I'm uh, sure Rob can relate to that as well. Yes, yeah. because <laughs> right. no one aligns. With that's right. right. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And so I'm actually in a situation where hardly anybody aligns with me, but I still do look to make like I still do look to you know to build relationships with people that know people know number one that I, that I know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. number two that I'm being sincere, number three is that I'm going to show up for stuff mm-hmm. and be ready to talk about it. And so whether you are aligned with my political outlook or not, you have no you have no choice but to listen to what I'm saying, sort of. So I like what do I say with Sil Wolford? Just we got to force it <laughs> down their throats. Um, but my what I was going to say is that yeah. The people that you don't align with politically, or your 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 interests don't align, your set of interests, your your constituent interests, or your you know whatever don't align. The the thing we do there from a strategy perspective is find out how to neutralize those people. Mm. And I think the the problem is that 
uh, people don't they, that part of it they don't they don't like they think like if 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 you're trying to build a relationship with somebody to do something political and you're nice well that's fine but if you're trying to if they're trying to stop you from doing it and you try to neutralize them and they get offended well i mean sorry like there's there's two ways to go about it i mean not everything is unfortunately not everything is going to be sort of a positive thing well I mean, sometimes you have to strategize and be absolutely. like how, how can i you how can i willing, bury this person yeah you have to be willing to piss people off you have to be willing to yeah to to piss people off is the only way I can think to say it for it's now. It's actually fun. I wish yeah. people would get yeah, be well, more willing to do that. I wish people, <laughs> yeah. but it could be not fun, fun for everyone. But but there's it's not just the people I don't necessarily align with politically. It um, there's personality issues. There's yeah. style. Yeah. There's um, you know. You think about the house, there are so many of them <laughs> and they come from so many different backgrounds and they have so many different personalities. And, you know, I have a certain kind of person that I'm comfortable around and um, I tend to surround myself with people who fit that. And for instance, I like people who, even though we might totally disagree and maybe they even hate my guts, will still at least be polite to my face. Because I just believe in a certain sort of one conducts oneself with civility, and that's how one should yeah, conduct I'm exactly oneself. The okay, so, I couldn't be. Yeah. I couldn't be. I'm 180 degrees from that. Okay, because I don't want people being fake to my that's, face. To that's why Rob I don't see a... it as fake. Yeah. I see fake. it as as that's how that's yes. the social contract. We yeah to be fake. The no. social contract. This is, is why be, you have a standing is, lifetime ban from like thirty to forty percent of the bars and restaurants in Wilmington. I mean, no, forty's a little bit high. But I would argue that <laughs> so I can have a really good conversation with someone I disagree with politically, like a Colin Benini. We couldn't be further apart, but he has that same desire to to be kind superficially <laughs> um, what does that mean to be let, let's break that down let's get philosophical mm -hmm, sure no i love what philosophy. does it mean what so when when you say just to be kind to or, not or be somebody, disagreeable some, somebody's being kind or or, or agreeable being, uh, yeah okay, also i think agreeable. it's what does that mean if they're doing it um uh, if they're if, if it's if it really doesn't mean anything superficial would mean superficial right doesn't really well i think only... also though there's a difference between for example seeding a lot of concessions to i don't know a, like a colin benini on a bill um because he's a nice guy versus just like having nice conversations or responding respectfully you know it's, it's yes like, that's I'm, true I'm I, I guess the I'm... concessions um it's not that yeah. i definitely yeah. i'm not talking about um you know, compromising to the point yeah. that you've completely defanged, you know, your bill. Yeah. I'm talking about I'm comfortable with a certain style, which is not abrasive and it's not overly aggressive. I would rather sit down and politely tell mm -hmm. somebody I completely disagree with them. And these are the reasons why yeah. and have them be able to hear that, take it in and say, OK, well, I completely disagree with you. And here are the reasons why. But mm -hmm. do it in a non-confrontational manner, but still hold true to what I believe. And they may yeah. and we may not even move each other, but we'll walk away both knowing exactly where each person stands, but without ever raising raising our voice or or cursing or like I just my my position to me that's that where I'm comfortable that's Correct. just my comfort level I completely understand yeah. and it would be comfortable if if the if that if that relationship were like just 
pe- people I'm friends with that I, I don't work with or I have no I have no project. They're not part of a institution that is operating in a project. I'm trying to do a political project. So that conversation that you just described, while both people walked away with it feeling nice and not like feeling bad about themselves or somebody else in their stomach, was wholly unproductive. Because well, they be, didn't change maybe, their maybe mind. Not. They didn't change their well, mind. They're, yeah. they're well, when not, you yell at each may... other, you don't change each other's well, it minds either. I, see, I don't yell <laughs> at people until I know that I until until I know where I sort of stand. Yeah. Well, I kind of don't. I think also like that. I mean, realistically, like. It's real, and just to revisit, <laughs> I've got my one talking point that I'm sticking to. I Jane guess Jane yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but like, I, I think, I mean, it. So yeah, maybe both people approach it. You know, I'm throwing Colin under the bus still. Like Lauren, Colin, Benini have this conversation, and neither changes the other's mind. But like, there just might be no strategy that works to change his mind. As you know, maybe it can there's neutralize. a long term. It can yes. neutralize, yes. though. Um, yes. and, That's I a mean, great point. Brian Pettyjohn is another one. We have nothing in common politically. Well, that's not true. There are issues that we would, you know, that are kind of universal. And I think, mm-hmm. we, but, um, but he, you know, he's, I, I look, the Republicans have, have to be good at this because they have no choice, yeah, right? right? So they <laughs> have six of them. Most so. of them, right. They, most of them have gotten pretty good at, being able to disagree without being disagreeable yeah. because they would just be shooting themselves in the foot if they were disagreeable because, yeah. you know, we would have the power to just squash anything yeah, they try to do. That's a very, see, yeah. that, right. that <laughs> right. is a very interesting detail in all of this. Yeah. It's like, who has the power to force stuff through? Yeah. Because there are people, there are people, who, the most productive, and when I say productive, I'll say the, res- sometimes the result need. I think I think there's not a lot of productive stuff that comes out of general assembly. I've said that before. And there's a reason for it because particular there's a particular people who have power sort of keep it that way. Keep it in the in the within the box here. And I don't uh, and I can think of some of those people. I'm not going to name them, <laughs> but we can think of, you know, who who they are. I don't think they're nice to anybody. No. They treat everybody like garbage. Yeah. So the most productive people who get the results that they want to get for the narrow set of interests that they serve, they don't treat anybody like this. Yeah, but also, I mean, if you are mean to them back. Well, I'm not talking about even mean mean to them back. What I'm I'm saying is, what what I'm saying is, number one, it wouldn't work anyway. Whether you're nice or mean, they're they're still going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, agree. Number two is, or actually number one, that would be number two. Number one would just be, that the interactions that you're talking about with those people don't have anything to do with actually the people who have power and are getting or are getting the results that they want collectively. Like they're not you're we're we're talking about that sort of cordial collegial interaction as if that the people who are actually making the decisions and getting stuff done they don't care about any of that. Right. And I want to be clear that I wasn't suggesting that that's um the best way to go about getting things done i was saying that that's actually maybe you could say even my limitation that one of the reasons um it's sometimes difficult to work with the other chamber this all started with me saying i don't have as many relationships over there because um i haven't taken the time to really get to know them there's so many of them Um, i wouldn't know where to start (laughs) um 
you know, and sometimes like when I have a, even if I have a, some, a, reg, a relatively non-controversial bill in mind, it's, then it'll suddenly occur to me, oh, shoot, I need to think of a house sponsor. Mm. Who do I ask? I don't know who to ask. I don't have like my go-to person. And also it's hard because, I mean, I'm sure like you're very familiar with just the personal dynamics in the Senate. And like, of course, you hear things about the House, but I am sure you don't feel as confident in knowing all of the different no, I would feel intimidated and, yeah. to just walk over there and watch them in session. I would just feel out of place. It's just it's yeah. this whole other world and it shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, but so I would say the dynamics of back to your original question of the tensions we feel. I don't I, I feel very supported in the Senate. Um, I feel like I have work to do on building more relationships in the House with people that like it or not, I probably need to have good working relationships with. Um, and I think we need to continue to build a coalition of people who are like-minded um, and grow that coalition and strengthen that coalition um, so that we can pass. There's certain legislation that's on my mind right now, for example, Leobor reform. Um, you know, we know that there are going to be forces that, that are fighting against that. And we know that there are certain people who have a lot of political capital down there who are aligned with those forces who are going to be fighting it. Um, and I'm not sure whether trying to even have conversations with those people is the way to go. It's probably, you know, building a coalition of like-minded people and making it happen that yeah. way. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, I, in terms of my own constituents, I feel like they're split down the middle between um, certainly I have conservative Republicans, but I doubt they vote for me. And so I don't worry too much about um, I try to be kind and civil and polite and well, a good see, listener. See, now in this but I don't worry too much about I don't worry too yeah. much about the way I vote. Yeah. Pissing them off because it's going right. to they're it's not like, going to are like you going to vote for, I don't know, whatever racist thing they're telling you? It's like, no, you're not going to, like, break your. Right. right. Yeah. And, and again, it's more and, between and the it's... moderate Dems and the progressive Dems where I have to try to figure out how far can I, how can I go as far left as I might want to without alienating the, the moderate Democrats that I probably need um, since I'm going to lose. The, most of the conservatives, unless they have a personal relationship with me and like me and decide, oh, what the heck, she's a good person, mm -hmm. you know, we'll vote for her. Even you've though. said you've had some of them. Yeah, like, I, I mean, yeah. At the it door, happens because been, yeah. the one on one at the door, I, it makes a big difference. Yes. People like to be heard. Yeah. And and even and if, even big, if you end up disagreeing. The, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the difference. And it didn't. Yeah. I'm putting it all together now. Right. Well, because it's, for example, like when you like with the the teachers union talk also like i mean i used to work um i worked for a construction contractor and admin and i was at a site so i had a lot of conversations with people in different like trade unions pretty regularly they would come in and like a lot of these guys were like all on the trump train you know mm -hmm. i was there in 20 in 2015 2016 and like they didn't know what to make of me cuz i was this weird communist mm -hmm. who like <laughs> would you know run my mouth when they would say sexist things and like it made or you know if they were saying something like racist or whatever i would speak up and they were like who the fuck is this you know um but also like eventually they started coming to me and talking to me about like personal stuff that was going on and about 
you know, family members who were suffering, you know, they may have had like kids who OD'd or like I just and would be really open and honest with me. And like we had I don't know, I had a lot of like really good conversations with them where they were vulnerable and we talked about like, you know, that just we found common ground for ways that we could like fight for a world where like they had more dignity and support. And I think like it again, just to bring it back to relationship building, like it's really important and there's no shortcut for it. But like, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that uh, uh, so one of one of my other guys, as people know, is Michael Brooks. Uh, Peace be upon him. The late Michael Brooks was a big influence on me and, and a lot of his network had supported me and we support each other now, which is really cool. But he had a thing and I think it fits this because, yeah, the, the approach to a constituent whether they wherever they land on the political spectrum or yeah because you don't have to name act, like you don't need to frame things through completely different. ideologically this is where i stand right. ideologically this is where you, like connect as people That's and different. take the, the time to build the relationships part, the institutional part i think is is completely different and he had a sort of a phrase that he would always say is that you you're kind to people yeah. an individual person you're going to be kind to you're ruthless with institutions yeah the difference is that there are there are particular people in the institutions that need to be treated like the institution. Okay, that's the way I would look at it. There's going to be no. If it serves your be, purposes, if it gets no, you to the end you want to yeah, get, yeah, there's going to be yeah. no constituent. Like you wouldn't, no, you wouldn't treat a constituent like that because they're not. They're they're yeah. They, they don't, the, have, the the power, they don't have, have the power. They don't have the power. Yeah, it's that's all a, that's a power. person. I mean, I, we have talked about this before. Where I, I you know, I. I spend a lot of time on the eastern shore of Maryland and in rural places and have this conversation all the time with people. And I I don't get mad. I, I, yeah. I never get mad. You know, I try to convince them that everything they think is the government's problem is their boss. And that's it. And they, they actually are very um, open to that line of talk. So, you know, um, that, yeah, I think that that's it. I think, I, th- I think we reached common ground here. <laughs> um, yeah. So before we get to the fun bit, I do want to give you, uh, you know, five minutes or so to just to talk about like the, my, your top two or three priorities um, that we were going to get behind, and, and we can chat about those a little bit and see sort of what the maybe what the status of those are, and then we'll have a little fun. We'll have a little fun bit. Oh, okay. Um, so I have I this year I'm working on some workers' rights bills. So I just passed the um, adding the additional year to the statute of limitations to file a claim for unpaid wages. But that's part of a package of uh, like three workers rights bills that I'm working on. Um, But I'm not sure how much I want to share right now, because in a way, part of me doesn't. Want I, to give a heads up to the opposition? I, I, I got you. Like, yeah. look, if anything, if, if something's called workers' rights and something's like extending the time limit where you can sue for back pay, yeah. and there's other things that we don't want to talk about right now, I'm good with that. Yeah, That's I think all, you'll, that all sounds good to me. Yeah, when they come, when those bills um, are filed, I'll I'll give you a heads up that they're out and you can look them over. I'm 99.9 percent sure you'll really like. Yeah, them I mean, now. I like. Let, let's just. The, <laughs> The, the general overview I'm getting is giving yeah. me a good feeling. Yeah. And I, I know, I mean, um, Laura, we've had conversations before about uh, just your interest in, I told this to Rob, I wasn't sure if he was going to go there before, but like mm-hmm. your interest in worker protections mm-hmm. and workers' rights. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to see what you come out with because I think like we need people fighting for those things in the General Assembly. Yeah. So what I tried to do last year, and I did file a bill, but it didn't go anywhere, um, seems like it's going to be 
uh, impossible for now. So what I did was, um, with the help of the amazing policy director, who now is DSEA's newest um, legislative, um, I don't know what the what is Design what is the term of art for a lobbyist? <laughs> she's she's their lobbyist, but okay. ta Taylor Hawk. Um, she helped me find other bills that weren't as difficult, um, but that were still going to help move, you know, give workers more protection. And so those are the ones I'm working on. So yeah, I'll let you. See. I just don't want to give away too much because I'm worried that other parties might start thinking, oh, this is coming. We're going to plan our way to fight it. Definitely. Um, plan, yeah. plan everything. Yeah. Plan, yeah. plan to fight everywhere. Spread yourself completely thin. <laughs> we'll exploit every, everything. Uh, so yeah. so I have a couple of those that are important to me. And then um, around the teacher stuff, here's my frustration. The, I am super excited about the 9% pay raise for, for classroom teachers. I do think it's an important part of retention given market forces. <laughs> because we have surrounding states who are offering much better starting pay and pay all up and down the ladder, yeah. uh, the pay scale. So I do think that's important. And, you know, the teachers union has decided to make that the priority. But there is another piece that's missing, and that is working conditions. Back mm -hmm. to workers' rights. Yes. Working conditions. Fighting for the dignity of the worker. Yes. Yeah. Like the teachers don't – some teachers quit because they can, you know, make just as much money – uh, or more, in a, I mean, not, they can make more money somewhere else, either doing a completely different job or becoming a teacher in one of our surrounding states. That's why we need to raise teacher pay. But that, it, but many teachers leave the profession because of the conditions. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I was close to quitting. In my 25 years, there were years I was very close. There was one year in particular in fact, it was the year that I became um, very involved in the union uh, mm. because of the circumstances under which I was working. Mm. So um, what I would like to focus on is certain things. I, I had the experience of working under incredibly good work conditions as a teacher in one district and some really bad working conditions in another mm. district in certain classes. And I've seen districts where nobody ever leaves and people sometimes leave, but they almost always come back mm -hmm. when they realize, oh, my gosh, what's out there is so much worse. And I know what teachers want for their for their own working conditions. And it has to do with class size and it has to do with planning time. Those mm -hmm. two things are essential. Your class size has to be the right size for you to be able to build a relationship with each student back mm -hmm. to relationships and meet each student where they are emotionally, socially, and academically. Mm -hmm. You can't figure out where each of your students is academically, let alone socially and emotionally. Yeah. If you have 35 of them, yeah. especially if they're from all different, like very diverse backgrounds, diverse life experiences. And I love what you're just to kind of underscore what you're highlighting here. The fact that like teachers and students are on the same side and what's good oh, for teachers is, is good for students. And and this is one thing the union always gets right. They This is a mantra teachers working conditions are students learning conditions mm -hmm. and i i'll keep saying it even though it may at this point have become a cliche but it is so true when a teacher can get to know each child and build a relationship and you know break down the barriers a lot of children who have trauma and in our public schools are filled with them you know it, they have walls up and it takes a while to break down those walls and get yeah. to know them but you can't break down the walls of 30 kids okay 
granted, not all 30 have walls. But if 10 out of the 30 have really big walls, really strong walls built up, yeah. it takes time. You can't get to know all the kids in the, at the level you need to to really make progress with them academically, which is what you're paid to do um, if, if, if there are too many. So, so class sizes is a huge issue. And we, we need to work on that, especially the more diverse uh, the abilities in that class. So the other thing is what students who have um, learning disabilities, you can't pack a class full of students with learning disabilities. Um, it, it goes against all the best practices. You know, there's something called least restrictive environment and natural proportions. And these say that, you know, students with learning disabilities should be taught in the same settings as student their, their typical peers. Um, and you shouldn't have more kids with a learning disability in a classroom than you would find out in the world. So if 13 to 15% of people have learning disabilities, then 13 to 15% is how many should be in each class. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, we are violating that um, best practice all the time. And it leads to very difficult working conditions for the teacher and those and, and terrible, really, like re-traumatizing kids who have already been traumatized by the school system because they're in a class that's chaotic and the teacher can't can't you know can't possibly get around to meeting all their needs because you know there's just too many with too much diversity in terms of need yeah. um academic need social need what have you and you'd be surprised like some of the conditions under which i worked that really led me to want to fix the system you know 30 kids in a class, 15 had IEPs, individualized education plans, and no co-teacher or any kind of support from the spec ed department. It was just good luck. You have 30, 15 of them have IEPs that are very specific about how their needs are to be met, and but you're by yourself, and mm. and you still have to, you have to meet all their individualized needs. Plus, it's not like the other 15 don't have individualized needs, too. They're just not documented right. right each child is different and and needs you know you need to to motivate them in the best way that you know you can figure out that motivates them you need to get to know them so um and then the planning time teachers have to plan lessons grade papers call home i mean you have to build a relationship with the parent in, in many yeah. cases um to do all that is just impossible within like the work day if you're not given adequate planning time. Mm -hmm. And I don't think any teacher really thinks that they're only going to work from 7.30 to 3 and never like work outside those hours, union or no union, contract or no contract. But we're talking hours upon hours upon hours of working outside where if you could just give every teacher, my ideal would be 90 minutes a day mm -hmm. um, in addition to their lunch period but 90 minutes of uninterrupted duty-free planning time that would be heaven mm. when i had that the whole time i worked in the votech district i had that it was amazing um but you know we we have teachers that don't even get 45 minutes a day of uninterrupted planning time we have elementary teachers who like are lucky if they get half an hour of uninterrupted planning time so planning time and class sizes and, per, and proportions of students with disabilities to their peers being appropriate so that the teacher can really meet their needs. And if, if you do have more than, say, 15% of students with disabilities in the class, then it should be required that you have a co-teacher, you know, who can help because with the second person in the room, you, you could handle more. So I actually have a bill that says all that, but here's the problem. Neither increasing 
or requiring a certain amount of minutes of planning time, nor requiring that like class sizes be capped or that co-teachers be required when we go beyond a certain proportion. Neither of those can really be implemented while we have a teacher shortage because they both require more bodies, right? You need more bodies to make classes smaller. You need more bodies to add a co-teacher. You need more bodies if you're going to give every teacher more planning time because then you need other teachers teaching during that planning time. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm right now a little torn because I've been sitting on those bills that would address those issues because I feel like I have to wait until we we're no longer in a shortage situation. And my hope is that that 9% increase plus an additional increase that will the PECC, the Public Education Compensation Committee, will um, come out with at the end of this year will solve the shortage and then we can address the teaching conditions. Mm -hmm. But it's a catch-22 because the teaching conditions aren't are part of the shortage, right? But I can't really do the things I want to do while we have a shortage. So I'm trying to figure out when's the sweet spot, when's the right moment to, to, to introduce those bills. You know what we say? It doesn't matter if you're the most progressive, uh, if you're almost the most progressive, uh, if you are Marxist revolutionary, or, you know, Lula de Silva in Brazil. What we do know is left is best. Good night. Good night. Good night, everyone.